Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Michael Campbell. Money Talks is brought to you by Solera Club. Solera Club is a royalty-based investment, which means you as the investor are the first in line to get paid. It has no fees attached to it, and uh, it's in the tech area, the tech field. For more information, go to soleraclub.com. Just looking at the federal election campaign, I mean, the pandering to the middle class by politicians has got to be the big triumph of the everyone-is-a-victim nanny state. I mean, come on. Aren't some of us even a little embarrassed that we're seen as incapable of doing things for ourselves? That we need the government to take care of what other generations thought was the responsibility of an adult? Now, I appreciate that even mentioning individual responsibility runs afoul of the progressive police and can't be tolerated, which is why you have literally not heard a single mention in the federal election campaign about individual responsibility. But come on. Thomas Mulcair thinks that the government needs to help out lawyers, doctors, business executives who earn six-figure incomes, live in multi-million dollar homes by subsidizing their daycare. That's instead of focusing on low-income individuals and families and the vulnerable. Justin Prudhoe has been up front from the moment he became leader. There's no talk about the homeless, the poor. The focus has been on rescuing the middle class from their oh-so-difficult lives. The Conservatives have spent far more time on credits for fitness classes, which the middle class, along with the rich, can take full advantage of, while their kids take music lessons, thereby qualifying the parents for yet another tax break. What hasn't occurred to the political commentariat, to most of the media, most of the voting public, is that the modern welfare state has long since replaced the poor with the middle class as the focus. I mean, there's so many examples. 80% of budgets in Canada's major cities go for salaries of middle class and upper middle class workers, and you should see their benefit package. The billions of dollars in business subsidies. Come on, the $14 billion bailout of Chrysler and GM? Who did that benefit? Middle class and upper middle class workers and management, not the poor. The anti-trade protectionism you're hearing about right now, that's done for middle class workers. And it's at the expense of the poor. When it comes to the billions spent subsidizing university tuition, the majority goes to students from middle and upper middle class families, the vast majority. In the U.S., it's not the poor who benefited from the Federal Reserve's low interest rates and the trillions spent on quantitative easing. It's very clear it was the upper middle class, rich and politically connected. What's ironic is that it's not the middle class who are the biggest beneficiaries from the shift in focus of the welfare state. No, it's the politicians themselves, it's the bureaucrats, the public servants who see their empires grow. The bulk of new tax dollars go to public sector pensions, benefits and salaries, which has created a major divide compared to the private sector counterparts. My goodness, Alberta is the poster child for that. When you see the vast, vast majority of the oil, fall, or oil windfall revenues going, say, from 2007 into 2000, beginning of 13, 95 cents out of every dollar went to the public sector, not new services. But even the pretense of helping the middle class turns out to be one of the great cons in history. The middle class, if they're having a financial problem, it's the tax take of the three levels of government. That's their biggest expense. It's that excessive regulation prevents them uh, prevents them rather from starting and growing a business and adds significantly to the cost of goods and services. What about buying a home in Vancouver? In Vancouver, amidst all the complaints about the high cost of getting into the uh, market, you know, affordable housing, that kind of stuff, it's rarely mentioned that the city government adds over $70,000 to the cost of a new 800-square-foot condo. 
Then you've got to throw in the provincial property purchase tax, other taxes on construction materials, on labor. You know, years ago, Ronald Reagan famously said that the nine most frightening words in the English language are, in quotes, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. Sure. Anyone who's had to deal with the bureaucracy, whether it's for building permit, removing a tree from their own property, starting a business, oh my gosh, don't hire an employee, knows how hollow that statement is. Way too often, government is there for government's own best interests. You know, there's an entire field of economics entitled public choice, and it's pioneered by Nobel Prize winner James Buchanan. The conclusion, government bureaucracies are guided by self-interest, not your interest as a member of the public. But it's amazing to see how many in the public don't appreciate that. I'll take a break. What are the top three stories that smart people are talking about? I'll get that with Michael Levy. Also, my guest, Jim Dines, the great legend of the investment field, makes time for us on Money Talks across the country. He'll do that at the top of the hour. Plus, my big fat idea for investments, that's coming up too, right here on Money Talks. Oh, I'm so bad. It's, I'm, a, I'm middle class, but don't make me take care of my own children. I need babysitting. Don't spend money on the poor and the vulnerable. I need it. That's the plaintive cry of the Canadian voter. Michael Levy joins me now for the top three stories that smart people are talking about. Mike, what about number three? Well, number three, and this is their own headline, the New York Times reaches a milestone thanks to our readers. And, Mike, they're talking about the transition from print to digital and the combination of both uh, when media, when print media is down to a shadow of its former self. Just take a look at the newspapers when radio listeners are falling off a cliff, when traditional TV viewers falling off a cliff. Here's the New York Times reaching a milestone, that milestone being they've just passed one million digital-only subscribers. A great uh, illustration of the massive changes. It's, you know, the, this is an industry, and talking about the media, that has undergone profound change, and most of it reactionary, meaning that they have waited for the problem to hit before there's been reaction. I still see, I talk to a lot of different businesses in the media, and I'm just watching how some of the new media has come up and really uh, made phenomenal inroads, especially in the digital side. So, yeah, when I uh, saw that, Mike, I was very surprised uh, they had done that well. Well, Mike, they, they uh, have... Besides for having a million digital only, they have another 1.1 million print and digital, those people who subscribe to the physical newspaper and look at it online. So that, that in total, catch this, they have more subscribers than at any time in their 164-year history, and they still employ as many reporters as they did 15 years ago. All you've got to do is go to newspapers like the Vancouver Sun, the Edmonton Journal, the Calgary Herald, the National Post, and look at how they've halved and sliced and diced the reporting staff in order to reduce costs. Here's the New York Times who took the bull by the horns and now is sitting in a better position than they ever have been. I just worry about all those people being exposed to Paul Krugman. Okay, number two story. <laughs> Nearly one in six Canadians could not handle a $500 increase in mortgage payments, Mike. They're talking about if you have a $300,000 mortgage. That's not a big mortgage. And you're paying the 2.7% five-year rate, which is what's out there right now. All you would need to see, if you just take your mortgage out today, next week, next month, or six months ago, is a 3% hike in mortgage rates between now 
and in the next five years when your term expires, and what Scotiabank is saying in their report is one in six would not be able to afford such an increase, and more than 25%, 27%, in fact, would need to review their budget. Yeah, it's a real debate, though, whether we're going to go back to those normalized rates, which would put that in about a five and three quarter percent range kind of thing. And you're mentioning, as you say, Mike, very clearly at a three hundred thousand dollar mortgage, uh, people probably listening in Vancouver today are going, who the heck's got a house for three hundred thousand dollar mortgage anymore? <laughs> so, I, I, of course, you've got to do the numbers. What I like about this, though, uh, Mike, is. You know, that's the big thing. You know, we've had this. We do talk an awful lot about the huge growth in consumer debt, but our assets have also grown uh, and probably faster. So we've got to look instead at the cash flow situation. So I, I just invite people to do their own personal numbers and see, would you be in trouble if we did? I don't think we're getting a bump in interest rates, at least for a year or more. But if we did, could you handle it? That's the warning sign. As you say, the report says 27% of the people would kind of, they, they can't do that five 500 bucks extra a month so that that i think is the level of concern but it's not the debt itself it's can you um you know can you handle it if you had a on a cash flow basis because clearly assets have also gone through the roof in a good way and mike i don't disagree with that at all but we're not talking about next year or the year after we're talking about new buyers buyers who've had their mortgage for maybe a year Mm -hmm. and these rates only have to go back to the 208 level and before by the way the decade before over the next three four five years and these people could be in trouble let's go number one story i got a feeling what it's going to be canadian business owners applaud the signing of the trans-pacific partnership and mike this was a great article in the globe and mail it was factual it was non-political and it just gauged and went out and judged the reaction of business as a whole in canada and what they came up with is a broad section of canadian businesses from cattle ranchers, grain exporters, small-scale manufacturers, and they all are applauding the signing of the TPP. Well, the only people who aren't are people who are in existing protection, uh, protected industries, although I believe that they're completely off-based in the auto, for example, because if the U.S. signed on and Canada didn't, the U.S. then would be opening up their market to uh, any manufacturer who's got 45% of the parts done. We're at 65, I think it is, uh, you know, domestically. Well, we couldn't compete. I mean, Canada's sort of hand is forced within this, but I think the point is any industry that is not protected is welcoming the opportunity to broaden their markets. Although, let's keep in mind, Mike, we already have four free trade agreements, uh, but the fact is that that, that uh, the U.S. would sign on without us, I think, has is, is got to be factored into any analysis of this deal. Well, you know, it does, Mike, because U.S. is our major trading partner. U.S., Canada, Mexico is the free trade agreement. If they sign on to the new agreement, Canada gets left behind. And, yeah. you know, I, I would have to say, Mike, that if we don't sign on, we are going to be left behind. That's the view of a lot of experts in this country. We really have no choice because if we do not sign, we are going to be frozen out of the TPP and frozen out of a good portion of our markets, potential and otherwise, where Canada has to do trade. Remember, we are a trading nation. We are not a nation of manufacturers and exporters. We'd like to be at this point with the dollar where it is, but we are not. We have to be in this deal, and I think it's tantamount that Canadians, all Canadians, realize that and go with it for the benefit of the country. 
Yeah, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, it's a, we got to see the details, obviously, but from, as you say, you're going to have trouble finding uh, anybody who studies trade and economics to be against freer trade. In fact, we've got a history, 1928, when uh, Hoover came into power, he reverses the trade stance there, becomes more protectionism, uh, Smoot-Hawley Act gets passed, presto, that is a major contributing factor to the Great Depression. Now, open trade, I mean, we've been big beneficiaries, as has the U.S. and Mexico from the North American Free Trade Agreement agreement. That's why, by the way, we're in the federal election. You would not see a single party, not the NDP, not the liberals, uh, you know, coming out against uh, the NAFTA agreement, saying something like, well, we're going to redo it if we get in power. You're not seeing that. Uh, the evidence is very clear. Mike, we'll have a lot of opportunity to talk a lot more about that very important story, but thanks for taking the time. Okay, Mike, have a good weekend. And you, happy Thanksgiving, turkey boy. Okay, you got it. Take a break. Come back. Hey, Mike's big fat idea. Stay tuned. Jim Dines is going to be my guest at the top of the hour. It's going to be a big one. Stay with us. Right now, it's time for Mike's Big Fat Idea. Joining me on the line right now, I've got Paul Phillip. He's president of Financial Wealth Builder Securities. Hey, Paul, thanks for taking the time. Let's start with what's the specific idea? Good morning, Mike, and thank you for having me on. Uh, The topic today and the specific idea would be strategic index investing. What strategic index investing is, first of all, it's not stock picking or predictions or forecasting. I've found in my investment experience nobody can consistently outguess the market over time. What strategic index investing is, is an investment process founded on evidence. It's about controlling what you can, asset allocation, diversification, and keeping costs low. These uh, strategic indexes are custom in nature. They're not a copy or a mirror of a market index like iShares or Vanguard. Our our strategic indexes contain approximately 8,500 globally diversified stocks around the world. The bet isn't on individual stocks. It's on capitalism itself. What we find is most companies around the world make good products that people want to buy, and they stay in business, employ people, and earn a profit. Some companies don't. The good ones, though, far outweigh the bad ones. When you own 8,500 stocks around the world, when the dust settles, you can earn a profit as an investor. We okay, let me, let, me just, yeah, let me back up for a sec. Okay, so you're, you've got something here that you're looking for in uncertain times. How easy it is to implement this? Well, what we would determine as a person's uh, risk capacity, how much equity they should have in their portfolio, and then it's a, uh, a low-cost mutual fund, so it's easy to implement. Okay, and so what you do is you combine, as you say, uh, do you, uh, what are the criteria for your selections, just quickly? Sure. Uh, the portfolio managers are dimensional fund advisors. On the board, there's some Nobel Prize-winning economic uh, professors that help select the portfolio. And what they are doing is putting an emphasis on small value type stocks, which is different than a traditional index, which is market cap weighted. So the portfolio managers are going around the world. They've selected these 8,500 stocks with an emphasis towards small value. And that is where outperformance is generated over time, having more small value in the portfolio than a traditional market cap weighted index. 
who who is this appropriate for? Like, what type of investor? It's obviously not for traders. You know, that's not the type of port. You know, uh, vehicle mm-hmm. it is. Uh, so, investors, uh, is it their growth side of the portfolio? Is it uh, sort of a yield side? Who's it for? First of all, it's for anybody who doesn't like losing money. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is for people who want security around their life savings. They are looking to make sure when they are working with their family's assets that they're going to earn a healthy profit over time, what the market will give. But what they are going to do for sure is protect their capital to begin with. So it is a, uh, a buy and hold type strategy, not for jumping in and jumping out. It's for sure. people that are looking for safety and security and a fair rate of return over time. And what, what, if someone said, well, how, how long is my time frame? What would be a sort of a minimum time frame? Obviously, if someone says, hey, hey Paul, I'm going to buy it today and, and sell it two months from now, you'd say this isn't for you. So what's the, what kind of minimum time frame are we looking at? Frankly, people can stick with this investment strategy once they understand it for the rest of their life. They're, the only time that you would get out of this type of investment strategy is when you're dead. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, I'm not suggesting that people take all of their money and, and put it in a portfolio such as this. If they still wanted to play the market with a percentage of their holdings, they can do that. But this is for the money you want to be sure about. If people okay. are living to 90 and 100 these days, they, make, they need to make sure that they have an investment portfolio that will carry them through. This is who it's designed for. Okay, let me. I got to leave it at that, Paul, because time's out. It's Paul Phillip, President, Financial Wealth Builder Securities. You can find him at www.fwb, Financial Wealth Builders, FWB, Bobby, FWBsecurities.com. Got to take a break. Come back. I got Jim Dine. Stay with us.